welcome to Sustainably Influence, the podcast, hosted by me, Bianca Foley. And me, Charlotte Williams. In this podcast, we explore our efforts to making changes to our lifestyle as influencers, to live a more eco-conscious lifestyle, and hope that we can encourage you to make one small change. This isn't just a podcast for influencers. We want this to be a community of people who are trying to do their bit, where we can learn from one another and share our tips. So join in the conversation over on our Instagram, at Sustainably Influenced. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Tom McGillicuddy. He's one of the co-founders of Ticker, a London and Liverpool-based impact investing startup designed to empower a previously excluded generation to invest for the first time using the feel-good factor of positive impact. Prior to Ticker, Tom spent eight years in investment management and investment banking. He is also a CFA charter holder. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. So let's go straight into the questions to talk about Ticker. So it's an investing platform that focuses on impact investing. Can you talk us through the platform, what it does, how you set up all of that jazz, and then also what impact investing actually is? Because it's a term that I actually hadn't heard of until I looked you up. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so there's a lot of different terms in that part of the industry that often get confused. But impact investing is a specific kind of investing where you're investing for financial returns to generate market or market beating financial return. Um, And at the same time, you're trying to have like a measurable positive impact too. So you are trying to invest in businesses that are solving some of the world's biggest problems through their business model, through the thing they sell, the service and product they sell. So they're they're trying to have a positive impact on a big problem. That's what impact investing is. And the the platform is designed primarily for people that are new to investing. So something that as I spent about 10 years in investment management with uh, Matt, who's the other founder of the business, and we became very, very passionate about financial inclusion. So the idea that most of the people that we've grown up with, our family and friends, never invested for their own future. And that was kind of robbing them of a financial future. So could we build something that was welcoming to them to get them to start? And then we started to realize that impact investing is actually the perfect way to get them engaged and get them to start because it's linked to the values and things that they personally care about. So you don't have to be from a finance or investment background to care about education or the climate, for example. We all care about those things. So in marrying those personal desires, you can actually get um, people to invest for the first time and do it for the long term because they feel connected to it and they feel like an emotional connection to it. So that's what the platform's all about. That's the initial part of the platform. Um, and we've just started to build out other elements of it. So the idea is that we become the most convenient way to positively impact the world through your finances. Um, investing being where we started, being the main key component to it. But we started to do things like calculate your carbon footprint in the app for you. Um, and uh, offer you ways to bring it down, offer you ways to offset it. And the idea being that we make your expenditure and your day-to-day life as uh, impactful as possible, but in a really convenient way. So it doesn't feel like you're having to like do loads of work to have a positive impact on the world. It's just happening for you as part of the service, part of the platform, part of being signed up to the app. I'm sitting here and I'm like, this is really, really interesting because I mean, I work for a a financial institution. That's my day job. But um, I just, I don't know enough about the investing side of stuff. I deal with like finances and all sorts of stuff all day long in insurance, but never hear about this side as much. And you mentioned something that I guess is the most poignant part about all of it, especially for our listeners. Like you guys focus on carbon footprint offsetting, which you mentioned. This is something we hear a lot about. We hear a lot about it, but I think 
there's not a lot of like a lot of people don't actually know what it is we've never spoken about it on here so how does it really work so how it works for us and there's, yeah there's, there's many many different uh versions of it and not all of them are fantastic and not all of them are doing it properly i don't think um but we're still very much at like day one of people trying to understand their carbon footprint and being products being built around it i think in the future your carbon footprint and a, a level of awareness about it will become quite standard, I think, but in the future. So how we do it is when you sign up to Ticker, you link your bank account um, um, to us via an open banking service. And that's primarily originally so that we can um, round up your spare change to invest in Ticker portfolio so we can see the, the transactions to round up. But what we can see from that is um, where you're spending your money and how much. And from that, we can do a calculation of what your footprint, our carbon footprint on the world is. We started with carbon, but we'll do plastic footprint and water footprint at some point as well. And then what you do is via a subscription in the app, you offset it around the world. And off, what all the offsetting means is you are funding kind of um, carbon removal uh, projects around the world that are designed to either remove carbon or do something uh, different with it. For example, there's carbon sequestration projects where they're literally taking it out of the air. There's building wind farms, uh, wind turbines, so you can reduce uh, carbon footprint in the future. Um, and then the most important thing is we retire the credits that you buy. So you're buying like credits in these projects. You're funding these projects effectively. And then we retire the credits from cir circulation so they can't be bought and sold. Um, so that's the main thing. So we calculate your footprint and then we've done due diligence on these projects around the world and we only really use... Um, a kind of project which is called the UN Gold Standard Project. So it's the highest threshold, highest quality of project, basically. So you can be pretty confident that your money's going towards this project and it's having an impact. Um, and then we do a little bit of reporting on those projects and the apps to our customers so they can see where their money's been, been used. Um, but that's how we do it. That's so cool. I think the whole carbon foot, um, footprint term you're hearing it more and more recently, especially in business. And I don't think many people know exactly what it is. I've had to look into it recently for my company. And before I looked into it, <laughs> I thought it was something completely different. So now I know what it is. I'm like, oh, but I've heard so many criticisms of people who are like, oh yeah, they're offsetting their carbon, carbon footprint, but that doesn't make, doesn't make them a good company kind of thing. So this is quite interesting because you're making sure, you know, people understand what it is they're all you, they're also the gold standard kind of side that they're definitely ticking the right boxes so it's yeah you're kind of that entry level of of goodness of like being a good person yeah you make an interesting point though which is carbon offsetting is used as a cop-out by a lot of companies um so that companies can just carry on doing what they're doing and then go oh we've offset our footprint over here so it's fine but that's actually not fine what what you need to, what those companies need to do is reduce their footprint and figure out ways to be to operate better so on an individual level that's what we're trying to do with our customers which is the first thing you do well the, the first thing you do is you invest in the solutions to the problem so we can actually you know have a better future that's number one and the second thing is we help you understand your footprint and then we recommend you better places to spend your money for example we have a partnership with bulb for energy for example so if we see a, a a you know a generic energy bill come out we recommend you bulb you get a free month at bulb you get a, a ticket credit in your portfolio for changing as uh, by being a ticket customer so that way your direct footprint has come down 
um, and we make your direct footprint as sustainable as possible. And then whatever's left, we offset that. So it's like a three-step process to be as sustainable, as, impo- as impactful as you can as an individual. Invest in the solutions, make your expenditure you know, as, as good as it can be, and then the re- whatever's left, you offset it because nobody could have a natural zero footprint. We're all going to have some footprint on the world. Um, it's you're doing about it's, it's kind of from our point of view it's like doing what you can and then offset the rest um I think it's just really really interesting because as you said it is it is being used as a cop-out so much more now I think there's there's so many more ways that companies can offset their carbon footprint their carbon footprint other than doing things like planting trees there's so much more that they can do to combat it and I think that a lot of companies are still just using that and as you said just saying okay that's the bare minimum that's where we're at and then all right we've done it so it's a tick box exercise rather than it being a conscious effort to be better um moving on to the next question so we recently learned that ESG funds are outperforming traditional funds while shares in oil gas coal like more traditional ones um more traditional companies have plummeted what does this mean for the future of investing and for the planet? And also, could you explain a little bit about what an ESG fund is for anybody listening who doesn't understand? Yeah, I'll do I'll do that last bit first, and then and then talk about the rest. So, ESG stands for so ESG and impact investing are related but actually different, and I'll explain why they're related and different. So, ESG, environmental, social, and governance, is about understanding if a company is exposed to one or more of those as risk factors. So what that actually means is, say for example, the reason why you wouldn't invest in a coal company from an ESG perspective is they may be exposed to an e-risk in the sense that uh, carbon emissions will be regulated more heavily at some point, for example. So that risk could impact that coal company's stock price. So ESG investing isn't actually about the impact of the company. It's about whether the company is exposed to those risks. So. The way I, the way we, we talk about it is what ESG investing means is you're investing in generally good corporate citizens. So if you look at an ESG fund, the top holding could be Coca-Cola or HSBC because um, the governance of Coca-Cola is very, very good. The social footprint, okay, they're making fizzy drinks that rock your teeth, but there's nothing else much going on. And they do uh, well on the E side because they're, they're very conscious of how they operate from, a, from an E perspective. So they're a good ESG company. Now, Coca-Cola is not an impact company because they're not solving any world problems. So the, where they overlap is you look at um, an impact business, say, for example, uh, Vestas Wind Systems is the biggest wind turbine provider in the world. They're an impact company because the, that's the technology they provide. That's the solution they provide. And they're also a very good ESG company because they're exceptionally well run. The governance is great. Little to no environmental footprint and little to no social risk, basically. So that's kind of how they can overlap. But they are distinct in the ESG kind of risk factor criteria. Now, the way they impact performance is different as well. So, uh, and this is this comes back to the original part of the question. ESG is seen as like a, a risk mitigation or risk reduction strategy because companies that have very good ESG ratings tend to just be better run. They have better uh, workplace practices. They think about the supply chain in a more, uh, a more fully formed way. They are, they're more aware of the footprint on the world. So they just tend to be better run. So when the market goes down, ESG companies don't go down as much, basically, because they tend to just be better run. That's what that's what it's risk reduction. Whereas impact is seen as uh, return enhancing. So what you're doing with impact investments is those companies are all investments made into like future themes. 
So like these big future problems that we need to solve as a global society and the companies that do them well and profitably and scale offer the chance for like outsized, like big returns because water scarcity, uh, affordable housing, education, uh, uh, clean energy are all these huge, big structural trends that we're solving. And what we've seen is companies that are solving those trends with the business models uh, offer great return potential and companies that are kind of well run from an ESG perspective offer great uh, risk reduction. Um, so they don't, they don't sell off as much. Combine them together, you've got a very, very powerful way of investing. Um, so that's what they all mean. And that's kind of, I think what it means for the industry, the reason why they've been outperforming or the the uh, what it will mean in the future is you no longer have to make a morals-based argument to get people to do this anymore. You can actually make just a returns-based argument because they've been doing better than everything else. And I think that's a huge tipping point for the whole industry the past 12 months um, because some people are convinced on the morals-based argument or the theme-based argument. Um, but I think the majority of people are more convinced when it hits the pocket. Um, so I think if you we, we can now just say, oh, it's also just the best way of investing and it's impactful, and then you'll get the masses to adopt it. So I think my prediction is that uh, impact investing in 10 years' time will just be called investing. It will be the default way of doing things. We'll think about uh, impact in the same way we think about return, like what is the impact of the investment? Is it doing something good for the world? Um, so I think, and that will be sped up by the fact that the returns are now better than the other the other kinds of investing. There's a few things in my mind here. So I didn't think of the difference there. And you're so right, because when you look at um, things like the report, what's the, re- the Fashion Revolution report last year and the, the index, and they like said that H&M was like the most, well, H&M turned out to be the most sustainable <laughs> company, but it was them just saying, you know, on the index, they're doing the, the best or whatever. Um, and I think as consumers, that's like, re- it's really important to understand the difference. And I don't think I've ever thought about that. Um, on the other side, so I have recently um, opened a lifetime ISA because I'm freelance. So I did that instead of doing a pension, but it's also connected to a sustainable fund. Um, and I spoke to my advisor on this, who's actually my father-in-law. And um, he, I said, is it not risky that it's you know, a sustainable fund? And like, is that not a risk? Because I was in my head, anything that's like eco-friendly or like climate focused seems like a risk. And he was like, no, this is like the future. This is something you should be investing in. And I was like, okay, obviously I would think I have a podcast about sustainability. I'm very environmentally focused. But when it came to my money, I was thinking, is this a risk for me to put money into? Um, to be honest, it's not doing great at the moment, but it's a long-term investment. So we're <laughs> I love the transparency there, um, babe. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, it, I just, that was like my first kind of introduction into that mindset. And I just... I found it really interesting that that's how I thought. Interesting. That's super interesting for you as well as somebody who's who's already sustainably minded. Yeah. The people that aren't, they're even, they'll be even more pronounced on that spectrum of it has to take care of that financial need first. And then, and then once it does, people will then engage in the impact and they'll engage in that extra element of it. But you have to take care of that first bit first. And I think... Luckily, well, not luckily, but our funds in, on on the platform have been doing really, 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 really well, and the wider industry has been doing well. So I think now that's the catalyst for like a mass adoption of it. I think um, we'll see. Yeah, it's really cool. Also, just a note that I've just um, signed up to the platform. I joined to. <laughs> I joined up. I joined up this morning. Yeah, I need to actually sit down because I've had a morning of meetings. But this afternoon, I'm going to sit down and actually put in all my details and do everything. 
again so far I loved it actually I found it quite interesting because I hadn't obviously spoken to you already and I was going through it and it was so easy and now speaking to you and that that thing I just said earlier about you being like the entry level uh, kind of in yeah input to the to into investing and, and doing better um it's really you can really see it on the app because you can tell that I haven't got over the bank holiday weekend <laughs> I physically cannot speak um, but yeah so when I was going through the process it was very easy to to see what my impact would be I thought that was quite cool because if I wasn't into the whole sustainability thing that it is then I was just like a normal person who doesn't have an interest in anything to do with the term sustainability and they signed up they could see how they would you know invest and it would be good but it's also very visible to see like how you um are making that impact so yeah I thought that was very cool so I'm excited to play around with it and see what I can do more and it's also just a note this is we might I not might not even put this in the podcast but it's actually really easy to um I found the user face really easy to use because I use a different platform other stocks and shares and I find it so confusing and I have to get my dad in law to help me because I'm just like, I don't know what this means. Whereas this, it's so, it's like using, not to compare you, but like Starling Bank as an example, really great bank, really easy to use. Um, compared to like my HSBC account where I'm like, what is going on? That's, that's great feedback. Um, thank you. And I, that's been like, a, obviously we've tried to achieve that. That's what we've tried to achieve because a lot of other investment products are very, very complex. And there's a lot of information that doesn't necessarily need to be there. Um, or there's a lot of jargon. The user experience isn't really designed for, it's designed for different people. It's designed for people that have done it before that kind of know what to press and know where to go. And we've made a conscious decision. There's like 35, 36 of us in the team. There's only like two or three of us that have ever worked in the investment management industry in the team. And myself and Matt are two of those people. So we've, um, and the reason why we've done that is because we were building the product for non-investment people. So it, if it passes the test of our own team, then it's good to kind of go through. And I think a lot of the other investment apps are built by investment people through the whole team, basically. And you can see it in the product when it comes out and it's still, it's still confusing and daunting for people that have never done it before. And we're not, we're not perfect on that, but we're, it's a constant journey to try and iterate and make it as seamless and easy to understand as possible. Yeah, I guess that whole, that idea of making it available and making it easy for a layman to use is, is a great selling point because somebody like me, as much as I have a little bit of background, I won't ever say that I know what I'm doing. So when I signed up this morning, I was like, oh, this is so nice and easy. This is great. It makes it so much easier to use and it makes you want to use it, which I think is a key thing. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, it comes through. So I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but 90% of our customers have never invested before. Wow. The first time. That's huge. So it's... Uh, it's a massive that's we've got to keep to that number but that that's yeah. split yeah I've had a conversation throughout the whole weekend weirdly about accessibility and investment not even remembering that I had this recording today but um, I was talking to one of my best friends from school and we come from very working class background um ha- our parents have like no insight to anything to do with investment or um find like general finances you know they had maybe an, I had an ISA as a kid and that's like as far as it, it went um and we were talking about how weird it is that we the kind of like class jump is all is always a really weird conversation because you know our parents are working class but we're not working class because our incomes you know we've jumped our lifestyle's different 
And that's really interesting. And then we were saying, you know, she got into investing when we were at uni because her ex was, um, you know, into tech and he studied tech actually and got her into it. And she's a maths genius. So it worked really well for her. But I only got into investing last year. And I was saying, if imagine if we didn't, we had known about this when we were younger, because we've both had jobs since we were 15. So imagine if we'd known about this from that age and we just started putting money into things where we'd be. And this is the difference between classes because a lot of the um, middle class and, and higher have insight to this from a young age because their parents have been doing it and it's part of their lifestyle. Whereas for working class families, it's seen as something that's a luxury. It's seen as something that is like completely out of their remit and not accessible at all. So apps like yours are actually really um, important because they bring that accessibility to everyone, not just it's like completely um, bridges the gap between classes, which I think is really interesting to see in 10, 15, 20 years where the class divide is going to sit. We'll obviously see, you know, there'll be a poor and there'll be a rich that will never end because of the world the world that we live in but I definitely think that the whole class system will change because there'll be so much new money that will come out of investing of um just like understanding financial literacy full stop which you've never had access to I'm so excited to see that journey and it's something that I really want to be part of the monitoring process because me seeing how my education my financial literacy education has developed in the last three years I'm a completely different person and even in the last 12 months I'm a completely different person and that's just me whereas looking at other people I just know so many people who are working class who've come from backgrounds that are even um you know their parents had nothing they maybe lived on a council estate and they maybe were living you know um what's it hand to mouth and now they're millionaires because they were able to understand how money works properly invested in the right things and look where they are today so I'm really really excited just to see so Matt and I are from those backgrounds and um I I constantly have an internal fight in my mind as to me not being working class anymore because my identity is fiercely working class basically but I uh I obviously went to university, worked in investment banking, and having my own startup, which is not not uh, doesn't fit in that criteria anymore. But my family are all still, you know, basically working class people. And I, if I am, if I'm ever referred to as middle class, I like, I like cringe and like, what are we talking about? I'm not, I'm not that. But uh, it's um, when Matt and I first started at Barclays, we were, um, which is where we started our career in the in the industry. We felt like we were the idiots in the room absolute idiots in the room and everyone else had these amazing backgrounds amazing educations they've been taught about investing since they were like three years old and they've been doing x y and z and we felt completely inferior um and it took us not a long time to realize that um we weren't uh we weren't uh we weren't stupid we weren't idiots it was the industry was designed to make us feel that way and we became very, very um, passionate early on about financial inclusion um, and building something that got people in the door to do this because that's you, you, the, the, what you said about where this goes in 10, 15 years' time um, really excites you. This desire to invest, which is clearly there now for the past for the past like 12 months, 18 months in Europe, is such an exciting trend um, because you'll have people from those backgrounds that will be able to build wealth for the long term because they're starting to engage with it and we're starting to build products that are designed to kind of take that and teach them and help them build it. And I think you'll, like uh, the, uh, I can't remember which one of you said it, but there'll be no, there'll be no class divide or whatever in the future. There'll be, there'll still be like something, but if you give everybody the tools to build wealth 
it will get even more blurred than it is, I think. And um, that's something that Matt and I are super excited about um, being a part of. I love that. I just find you you telling your story and I kind of agreed with it in the sense that I went to an okay state school, not the best. I went to a really good university and then I studied languages. So something like 95% of um, language students come from privately educated backgrounds. Um, went back to, don't quote me on that, but I went back to my uni, um, not last year, the year before, because I do talks for the BME um, societies and do like um, events and stuff with them. But um, I went back and I was speaking to one of my lecturers who is from Brazil, um, an incredibly smart, well-educated man. He's insane. But um, he remembered me off the bat and he was just like, yeah, of course I remember you. And it was basically like, A, you were one of like three black people in the whole um, year. And B, you were one of the, like one of three, not, but not part of the black group, um, state school educated people of the year. And I was just like, whoa, that's crazy. And he was, I was like, how's it like getting on now? And he was like, it's even worse. And there are certain um, parts of education, like finance, like um, language learning, that come through really well to the um, private school system, but don't translate into the state school system because the curriculum doesn't allow for it because there's, it's just not a priority. Um, th- these things aren't priority um, subjects. And because of that, we're, we see there are lots of um, foreign language speakers who've learned from school and university that are privately educated, a lot of people that go into investment banking who are privately educated, but it's because they learn differently. Um, so I just find this whole um, divide, this education divide, so interesting because it's basically led to where we are today. And that's why when people are like, oh, my God, he's a doctor. He's so smart. Oh, this is so smart. Like everyone is smart. Everyone has the ability to be anything. It's just how you get there. So, yes, doctors are amazing. Well, some of them are amazingly smart, but they studied for seven years plus to get to that point. Architecture studied for seven years plus to get to that point. You could have done that. But it's just what was your route to get there? So I just, I'm a, I'm a education obsessed and the lack of like education um, within the UK specifically, I'm obsessed. But yeah, this is the conversation I can have forever and it's not re- uh, relevant to the it is, it is relevant though, because it's like, it's access. It's all about access to stuff. Like my friends growing up could have been world-class harpists, but we'll never yeah. know. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll never, we'll never know if we could have expressed that because and maybe they wouldn't want to be that. But it's just like, we, we didn't have access to any of this stuff, whether it was sports facilities, music facilities, language facilities, whether it was to education on actual finance and investing. You kind of have to stumble across it in your adult life and figure it out for yourself. And I think we see it as our responsibility to educate people on investing. That's part of what that's part of what we do. And um, if we can try and plug a gap whilst the education system is failing, that's how we see it. I love this. Oh, purpose-led. Um, okay, so moving on to... Oh, actually, nice move on to the next question, which is about B Corps. Mm. So like most companies who are invested in people and the planet, you're a B Corp. So what does that mean and why is it important? Yeah, so there's some practical things that it means for the business. One of them is that in our articles of association, so our legal documents that kind of um, 
set up the business, we have to have in them a statement of commitment to environmental and social um, governance and environmental and social impact. So it legally changes the structure, uh, part of the structure of the company, basically, to have that at the center of, of our DNA. It already was for us. Um, so going through the B Corp assessment for us was really a public uh, stamp of we are doing what we we actually say we're doing officially by like a, a third party regulating us effectively. Because the way I think about B Corps is financial services businesses in the UK are regulated by the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. And I the way I think about B Corp is it's like a regulatory body for sustainable and ethical businesses. And I think it will be seen like that more and more in the future. So you won't be able to say you are that unless you have it or something like that. You know, there'll be there'll be a close link between those two. Um, or you'll because companies that will say they are but don't have that will be looked on as like, well, you're not really walking, you know, walking the talk for whatever, for whatever reason. So it's it helps us uh, communicate to our customers that we're doing what we, that, that, that we say we're doing, not only in what we invest in and the product, but how we treat our employees, our supply chain, how our offices are powered, how down to how we recycle, down to us giving every single employee ownership of the company, which is what we do. Um, every every employee has shares in the company that will continue forever. Um, so those things score well in the B Corp assessment. Um, and uh, and for us, yeah, it's like that kind of external stamp of um, um, who we are. And it was very, very important for us to get it because of the DNA of the business. We always wanted to get it. Um, and we did it last summer. I think we got it over the line, but it takes a while to get through. It's, it's tough. It's very, very tough to do it. <laughs> There's a lot of criteria though, isn't there? And it's a lot of criteria, everything you can imagine, everything you can imagine. They go into it. It took us like eight months, I think something, eight, nine months, something like that. And now, now at the moment, it's become so inundated with applications. They've had to like delay people's applications because it's becoming so popular for people to apply. Obviously, most businesses get rejected, but people can go and do like an initial assessment and they'll tell you whether you're likely to pass or not. And if not, they'll, they'll let you know the areas you need to improve on. So I think even if you can't pass, it's a good way of going like, what do I need to look like to pass? And what areas, do, what things in my business do I need to address and implement and things like that? So it's very, very useful. And then as, as another part of it, um, we will do a public impact report, an annual impact report every year um, for the business, our investments, our customers, um, what we've achieved. Basically, that's a, that's another kind of stipulation of, of being a B Corp. So we'll, we'll be doing our first one at the end of this year, I think. So my last question is kind of taking away from the app and focusing more on general um, tips. Um, so could you give our audience who perhaps are new to investing some tips on what to look for to ensure that their investments are environmentally and ethically sound? Yeah, so a few tips would be, if you're looking at um, different funds to invest in, for example, anything that has ethical or ESG or sustainable in the title, make sure you look the best way to tell if a if a fund is genuinely doing the thing that you want it to do is to just look at the top five holdings and they tend to be on like a, a fact sheet um so if you're buying it on a brokerage platform for example or a trading app or whatever you're using um always have a look at the top holdings of the fund because that will tell you all you need to know about whether the fund is actually doing what you want it to do or not because a lot of these sustainable ESG ethical funds, some of them even have like ExxonMobil as the top holding, which is not a joke. Some of them actually do. So, and I'm sure that's not what people mean when they want to invest ethically, sustainably or with a climate uh, focus. So always have a little look at the top five holdings and you should be instantly able to tell 
whether the fund is genuine or not. And that's how you can uh, tell quite quickly and easily whether um, the fund is uh, constructed in the way you want it to be for, for a climate and impact kind of focus. Perfect. Thank you. So that was the end of our scripted questions. But I don't know, Bianca, is there anything that you want to ask? No, I mean, I'm just I feel like I need to go and do a load of research now because it's something that I've been interested in doing for a long time. But I think, as I mentioned before, for me, it was the fear of not completely understanding. And that's what made me kind of shy away from investing sooner. It's really funny because I actually grew up, I grew up with both my parents investing and really right. I was never interested. I was always a bit like, oh my God, can you like just shut up? I don't care. But now as an adult, I'm like, oh crap, actually, yeah, I do need to know these things. I do need to be smarter with my money. And especially working in an industry where constantly day by day, I'm looking at financial statements and all sorts of things. I realize how much more that I need to be investing my money more wisely and to have your money make money for you. And if we're doing it in an ethical and climate focused way, then why the hell not? It's a win-win.